It's good to be with you this morning. If you're a guest with us, welcome to First Baptist Church of Tipito. We're always excited to have guests with us. Uh, if you're a member, know that we are faithfully praying for you guys. Um, know that we are looking to pastor y'all. I'm talking about the leadership. Uh, we want to continue to pastor y'all. We want to continue to love on y'all. So let us know how we can pray for y'all. Uh, let us know how we can meet your needs. Amen. With that said, we are in the book of Hebrews, and we are in Hebrews chapter 13, and we are in verses 4 through 6. So when you turn to the passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 4 through 6, um, when you've arrived to the text, say word, word, stand. We stand out of reverence to God's holy and righteous word. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we seek your face, that you shower us with love and mercy. Direct our hearts, O Lord. We're here this morning to make much of you, Father. We've had busy week. week. Uh, we've had busy days, and uh, we, we've, we've entertained a lot of things. But God, this morning, we want to make you a priority. And we want you to be the priority in our lives, God, throughout the week. So readjust our hearts, O oh Lord. Readjust our affections, O oh Lord. But teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not. And give us what we do not have. God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title for today's sermon is The Christian Ethics Part 2. Last week, we observed that the author transitions from doctrine to duty, theology to practicality, indicative statements to imperative commands. And he continues this week with the same imperative commands. This is a style that he, we, we, they use in, in most of the New Testament. You will find again in the book of Romans, the first 12 chapters or 11 chapters is about what? Indicative statements, who you are in Christ. And then he transitions from that in chapter, from chapter 11 to chapter 12 as to what we must do as Christians. So last week we observed the commands from the author of the book of Hebrews. What are the commands? He says, we are to continue with brotherly love. We are to have deep affection for one another. Then he says to us as well that we must, what? We must be hospitable. We must show hospitality to others especially brothers and sisters in Christ. And third, he says to us that we must remember those who are in prison for the sake of their faith. They are placed in prison because they were sharing about Jesus. So we are to remember them. Remember the brothers and sisters right now in Sudan who shared the gospel and they're in prison right now in China. 
in Africa, all throughout the world. We in this culture must remember them and pray for them. And now he continues. So we noticed that last week, he focused primarily on the, the social life of the Christian, social ethics. Here, he transitioned from the social ethic to personal ethic, private ethic. So now he says to the Christian, when you are running this marathon, and when you are looking to this two mountain, Mount Zion and Mount Sinai, you must march with two things in your hand. Hold two things in your hand. In one hand, you hold marriage. You honor marriage, and you hold it firmly. In the other hand, you hold money, but you hold it loosely. You see, and this is exactly what he's doing here. He's, he's telling the Christians, based on their personal lives, to evaluate their own lives. How is your marriage? Do you hold marriage in honor? And how is money in your life? Do you love money? And if you love money and that's what you're pursuing, there is a major problem with that. This morning... In our personal holiness, the author of Hebrews commands two things, and these two things will be our two points this morning. Point number one, hold marriage in honor. We see this in verse four. And point number two, hold money loosely. We see this in verses five through six. Friends, coming closer, and I don't want you to miss this. These are two incredible points here for us. And when we look in our culture, we see two things, that the world does not honor marriage at all. Even Black Lives Matter in their statement and what they believe, they are saying they want to attack the marriage, the nuclear family. But they're saying something that most people in the culture are saying. They do not like the family. They do not like marriage. And at the center of the family, the foundation of any family, a good family, is the marriage. So the world is coming against marriage. So, so we here in this church as Christians must pay close attention to the words here. The second thing is money. The love of money has ruined many, many people, many ministries and pastors. So we must pay close attention to the warning here. This message is for you. If you are married or you want to be married, it's for you. If you are working and you are handling money by any means possible, this message is for you. Do not love money. So first, hold marriage in honor. I love what he mentions here. See for yourself what he says in verse 4 of chapter 13. He says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all. In other words, literally, he is saying, Let marriage be precious to all of you. And you would think, He's writing to a group of Christians that they would get this. But no, no. The world's perspective has infiltrated the Christian church. 
and marriage is no longer honored like it ought to be. Let me give you a perfect example of this. Ten years ago, the percentage of people who divorce went all the way up or reached 51%. This is in the world. 51% of marriages end up in divorce. And you would think the church would be any better, but we're just a little bit better, just 1%, 50% of Christians who get married end up in divorce. But for some reason, it went down significantly from 50% to 40%. And researchers and psychiatrists were baffled by the numbers. And they're like, what is going on? Maybe, maybe people are beginning to understand the sanctity of marriage. So now marriage is pure to them. So as they start researching, they're realizing that people are no longer getting married. They're just shacking up. <laughs> So this is why the divorce rate went down, is because people are no longer getting married. They have traded one sin for another. They have traded, what, adultery for what? For fornication now. They're cohabiting. They're going together and shacking up, right? And listen, friends, this is a major, major problem. Why is this a problem? to cohabitate with someone that is just a partner of yours and you're not getting married is to go against what marriage is meant to be. And God called for marriage for one man and a woman to enter into a covenant together and to love each other and to glorify God. Here specifically, he says, he says to hold marriage in great honor. Notice very carefully what Jesus, or what the author of Genesis mentions. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 34, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Jesus said this in Matthew 19, verse 6, So they are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is so honored that it's honored by the Holy Trinity. Marriage is honored by the Holy Trinity. Well, where are you getting this from, Kevin? Notice very carefully. The Father honored marriage by giving it to us as a gift. We, we see this in Genesis chapter 2, that God gives us marriage as a gift. And this is how the Father honors marriage. Jesus, coming closer, Jesus honored marriage by performing his first miracle at a wedding. We see this in John chapter 2, verse 1. The first miracle that Jesus ever performed was at a wedding. Why? To show us that he honors marriage. And the Holy Spirit honors marriage as we notice in Ephesians chapter 5, by using it to portray the relationship of Christ and the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 through 32. This is one of the reasons I absolutely love Christian marriages. Last night, we were able to be a part of Maori and Adam's wedding, and, and several of you guys were here as church members to witness this. 
But what was even more, I guess, encouraging is that when we went to the reception, that we all were happy and excited for them. We were all singing and dancing. Well, at least some of us were trying to dance. Others, I don't know what they were doing, but anyway, dancing, right? And, 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 and there, is a sense, there is a sense of crying as we saw Stephen with Mallory and dancing. It's like I look around and people were crying, right? But people were also laughing. It's just the emotion when we are part of this wedding that something good is happening. And it's, it's because God has honored marriage, especially a marriage between two Christians. It is something special, saints. And this is why the author is saying to us that we must honor marriage. Hold it firmly. But then he transitions to what dishonors marriage the most. And he tells us here what dishonors marriage the most is the marriage bed. Basically, the marriage bed is sexual intercourse. And he says to the Christians to be careful, to protect that. He mentions the word pure here, referring to a sacrificial term, referring to the marriage purity altogether. And the author of Hebrews is looking at the marriage bed as an altar, that when both spouse come together, that they're given something up, they're given something holy up, something true up. So the marriage bed should be something that is very, very important. And this is how we find ourselves with the marriage bed not being important, not being holy, not being set apart, is through fornication and adultery, lust, pornography. All of these things go against the marriage bed and it dishonors marriage. And when Christians are involved in that, we tend to be a stumbling block to the lost world. Because we know a lot of lost people, this is what they're doing. They're constantly cheating on their spouse. They're constantly lusting at other people. They're constantly wanting to do horrible, sexual, immoral stuff. But when Christians act that way, we become a stumbling block. I love this. I love this. Pliny was sent by Emperor Trajan to basically go and to the province of Bithynia and to look for reasons to accuse the Christian church. And as he was there, he came back with this report and he says, On the Lord's day, they bound themselves by oath, not for any criminal end, but to avoid theft or adultery, never to break their word. In other words, he's saying, look, we, I cannot find a charge against these people. They are different than the world. When it comes to adultery, they, they look at their lives and their marriage and they're holding it firmly. When it comes to money, they're holding it loosely. There's a difference in those Christians. But can he say the same thing about us today? Can you look at the church, the universal church today, and say the same thing? 
we ought to be different. We Christians are called to be outrageously pure, to be a witness to this world. John MacArthur states, within marriage, sex is beautiful, fulfilling, creative. Outside marriage, it is ugly, destructive, and damning. I know, I know. I want you to come in closer. Maybe some of you are weird. Weirded out. You're not weird. <laughs> but you, you, you find it's weird that I'm talking about sex, or the Bible talks about sex. And you're thinking, well, my children, they're listening to this right now, and I don't want them to, so there's a major problem with that. I get it. I understand. It's my job to preach the word. But listen, listen, mom, listen, dad. If you do not inform them of a biblical view of sex, the world will inform them of an unbiblical view of sex. It's your job to teach them, and especially in the world that we're living in today. And this is exactly why the author is saying to us to pay close attention to this, to that. He says to us exactly what the problem, right? So he says that the marriage bed is meant to be pure. And he tells us, and he goes on even further, see in your own Bibles and see for yourself. Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual, immoral, and adulterous. The term sexual immoral here pertain more to fornication. There is a sense of someone who is not married and yet they have this other person, a significant other, and they are having sex without marriage. And he says here that God will judge such fornicators. And then he mentioned adulterers as well. That he says that those who practice adultery who consistently do such, God will judge. My friends, these two sins that we see before us, as I mentioned above, it's very much so perverse in our culture, widespread in our culture. And there are a lot of problems when people continue in such. For example, if we continue to dishonor marriage and the marriage bed. This is what happens. It is accompanied by, with anxiety and depression. Why? Because you're consistently lying to your spouse. You're consistently living a double life. So there is anxiety and depression. STD, STDs accompany such lifestyle. People who consistently live lifestyles like this, they find themselves with a lot of STDs. Abortions happen consistently with people who live lifestyles like that. Well, this child, I don't want this child, so abort this child. Illegitimate children happen through lifestyles like this. When we are sexual, immoral, and pursue adultery, this is exactly what happens. And even murder happens with lifestyles such as this. 
How many times have we read from about an athlete who got a woman pregnant and to cover it up, he kills the woman and the baby so his wife won't find out? This is exactly why the Bible is warning us to abstain from such behavior. We're coming closer. A good marriage relationship provides one of the best deterrents against apostasy. But a horrible marriage will encourage apostasy. How many times have we heard of pastors who fall in sin, who dishonors the marriage bed, has affairs upon affairs, and people left the church because of that? But at the same time, when I think of John MacArthur, and I think of John Piper, and I think of these brothers who have been faithful to their wives and faithful to their marriage. It gives me a great desire to pursue the things of God. Marriage is foundational for the society, but also for the church. It's a great deterrent from, from those who would pursue apostasy. But here we are called to pursue or to honor marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, verses 9 through 10, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not deceive neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolatrous, nor adulterous, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is the word of God. God looks down on such behavior. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. Let, let the word of God speak to you, right? You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What must we do? Hold marriage firmly in honor. Honor your marriage. Invest in your marriage. Your marriage is a great platform to share the gospel to others. We are called to do it. To hold firmly marriage in one hand and hold loosely money in the other hand. This is exactly what he does here. He transitions from marriage to money, from the bed to our pockets, right? And this is exactly what he mentions here. Look in your own Bibles and see for yourself. What does he say here? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now stop one second. It often surprises Christians that when we discover in the Bible that Jesus talked a lot about money. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus talked a lot about money? As a matter of fact, 2,300 verses in the Bible is about money. It's about money. Jesus spoke about money rough, roughly 15% of his preaching. 
And 11 out of the 39 parables in the Bible is about money. So stop. Why is Jesus talking a lot about money? Is Jesus like the prosperity preachers? Every time you go to their church, they're always talking about money and how you ought to give. No. As a matter of fact, what we know about Jesus is that he says that he doesn't even have a place to lay his head, is what he said in the gospel. Jesus was not a wealthy person. However, Jesus knows something that we must pay close attention to right now. He talks a lot about money because he knows that the love of money can be our idol. The love of money can be our God, and it is the God of so many people, especially in America. The love of money can be our idol. The love of money is a violation of the first commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and have no other idols before him. But when we love money, it becomes before God. It's a violation of the 10th commandment, which is we are called not to covet. But the love of money causes us to covet even more. So friends, pay close attention to this. Come in closer and write this down if you can. Materialistic cravings and greed are a great evil because they show dependence on money rather than on Christ. You get it. The love of money is the sin of covetousness. You might be looking at me right now and say, well, Kevin, how can I love money when I don't have a lot of money? I don't have a lot. As a matter of fact, the government is always taking my money. What about inflation? What about all of these things around me? I, I have nothing. My retirement is going down. My investment is going down. My social security is going down. I need money. I don't have money. But listen very carefully to J.C. Ryle, the old preacher. Oh, J.C., thank you for saying that. He says, it is possible to love money without having it. You know that? It's possible to love it without having it. And it is possible to have it without loving it. He's right. A lot of times when we don't have it, we love it. We pursue it above all things. And covetousness is an attitude. It is an attitude. It is wanting more. Even after you get what you want, you want more and more and more. The story was told about John D. Rockefeller when he was a young man. And a friend reportedly asked him, how much money does he want? He says, I want a million dollars. But after his first million, the friend went up to him and says, do you want more? He says, yes, I want another million. <laughs> you see, whatever we covet and desire, we want more and more. It's like gluttony. We want more and more and more. And friends, this is the problem that we have here today. This is the problem that the text is addressing to us today. For us today. Come in closer and write this down if you can. Materialism demonstrates that someone cares more about items they can see than about spiritual promises they cannot presently see. The father was walking down the street with his two small boys, young boys. They were fighting, 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 and arguing. 
and the neighbors saw them and the neighbors said, what's going on? And the father says, this is the problem today. My two boys right now are illustrating the problem in America, in the world today. And he says, this is it. One of them has a piece of candy and the other one wants it. <laughs> is that not the problem that we have today? We are jealous of our neighbors based on what they have of our friends and our family members based on what they have. But it's important that you get this, and this is a context of America. So I'm using the ancient texts. I'm using the warning here, and I'm placing it in our westernized culture, in our American culture, and you need to hear this and know this. Do you know that America is one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest country in the world? It's amazing. There are 2,668 billionaires in the world, and 735 of them are Americans. 27.5% of the world's billionaires are Americans. And you might be saying, well, Kevin, I'm not a billionaire. <laughs> what does that have to do with me? Well, come in closer and pay close attention to this. Americans are among the global rich. You are. You are considered to be wealthy in this world. You might look at your bank account and say, well, Kevin, I'm not wealthy, but based on the world, compared to the world, you are very wealthy. So I researched and I found this. Even the median household income of 71,000 places of family in the top 4% of the richest people in the world. But if your family combined, you're making 71,000 a year. You're part of the 4% richest in the world. You might say, well, I don't make 71,000. I make 60,000. I'm not rich. I'm poor. No, no, wait, wait. You're still wealthy. You're still wealthy. As an individual, you are in the top 1% of the world earners if you make $60,000 a year. You know what blew my mind? The median worldwide wide income is this. Are you ready for it? 2800 per year. There are some of you, perhaps some of you, not me, maybe some of you, for making this a week. A week. Imagine. Can you imagine? And we say to ourselves that we are not wealthy. No. You know what this illustrates for us? Nowadays, people can be divided into three classes. What are they? The haves, the have-nots, and they have not paid for what they have. I wish I came up with it, but I did not. <laughs> What's the antidote for such horrible attitude? The antidote is contentment. You know how wealthy we are as Americans? We're very wealthy, right? But we are so much in debt, most in the entire world. The wealthiest group of people are the ones who are more in debt than anyone else in the world. Can you imagine this? Are you ready for this number? In 2022, credit card debt is up to 9 
billion, $9.25 billion. That's a lot. No, 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 I'm sorry. I messed this up. $925 billion. Golly, Kevin, you messed this up. <laughs> Not 9.25, it's $925 billion. There's an epidemic, friends. Why am I giving you this? Maybe you're a part of this. Maybe you're part of the problem here. And it's because of the love of money. We want more and more and more and more and more. So we get credit cards and, and we, we want more and more. And friends, listen, if you're a Christian this morning, turn away from that. And what you must turn to is contentment because this is exactly what he mentions here. Notice very carefully what he says here. He says in verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. This is the problem. A lack of contentment. Be content with what you have. Let me closer and get this. Write this down if you can. Our contentment should be in what Christ gives and not what we can achieve for ourselves. This is a problem in our westernized culture. Pursue what we can achieve for ourselves. I can work with my hands. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And yes, we should. We should work. We should work. But we must trust in Jesus of all things. Be content with what Jesus has for us. For us. And what contentment does for us, it shows us the face of God. And this is exactly what he says here. Notice the great promise here. He transitions from sharing about contentment to helping us see this great promise. And he says, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. This is implied throughout, throughout the Bible. But there are explicit commands where God says to his people that he will not leave them or forsake them. Let me give you a few examples. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 15. God told Jacob, I am with you. I will not leave you. Moses, he says to him in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, he says to Moses, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. He says to Joshua, when Joshua took on the mantle, he says to Joshua, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. And he says to David, instructed Solomon by saying this to Solomon, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God, my God, is with you. Friends, in no situation will God leave us, nor any reason for him to leave us. But he's always with us. We're coming closer and get this. But there are some times, even when he's with us, he hides his face because of our sins, because of the love of money, because of the things that we pursue. And in other situations, we draw away from him. But still, still, he does not leave us. But you know what contentment does? Contentment allows God to shine his face, to put forth his face, his face so we can see it. This is the beauty of this text. 
This is the beauty of this text. When we find true contentment in God, in everything and anything that we do, we find that the presence of God is even stronger with us. He reveals his face to us. Perfect example. Like you've been, you've been praying for this job and whether you should leave the job that you have to go to another job and you find yourself very discontent, very discontent, but God speaks to you and God says to wait, to wait, to wait. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. And then you find yourself relaxed and content with God. You find yourself at peace. And sometimes, sometimes, even when you're in that situation that God blesses you, gives you the new job that you want. That happens as well with a spouse, that you're constantly perhaps looking for a spouse, looking for a spouse, and, and, and there is anxiety, and there, there's all of these things, and all of a sudden God says to you, calm down, calm down, and you calm down, and there's peace and contentment, and you're okay with God. And when you're not looking, God sends someone. It happens on a consistent basis. What contentment does, it reveals the face of God to you, the presence of God to you. It tells you that he is with you, that he will never leave you or forsake you. This is the beauty of contentment. But notice what else he says. Another great promise he gives us here. He quotes Psalm 27 verse 1. And in that he says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And he quotes Psalm 27, and he tells us that we can have great confidence in God. When you find contentment in God, there is confidence that he will provide. There's confidence that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is confidence that even when man can take away your possessions, man can take away your life, they cannot hurt your soul. This is exactly what Jesus mentioned. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. This is by far one of my favorite stories, and I want you to hear this carefully. John Chrysostom lived in the fourth century. And John Chrysostom was a man who loved Jesus dearly. They called him the golden mouth because he preached the gospel so eloquently, so passionately. But John Chrysostom, as the Roman emperor, called him and said to him that I'm going to kill you. I'm going to banish you. I'm going to kill. I'm going to take everything away from you. And this is what John Chrysostom said to him. Thou canst not banish me from this world is my father's house. But I will slay you, said the emperor. Now thou canst not. Let me, let me translate this in, in our language. Nah, bruh, you can't do that. <laughs> said the noble champion of faith, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away thy treasures. Nah, bruh, you can't do that. For my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there. But I'll drive thee from men, and thou shalt have no friends left. Serious, bruh? Nah, bruh. 
you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee. There is nothing that thou canst do to hurt me. Wow. This is a brother who've read Hebrews chapter 13, verses 4 through 6, and is looking at the emperor and saying, Nah, bruh, you cannot hurt me. Why? Because of such great confidence in God, such great contentment in Christ. Friends, is there contentment in Jesus this morning? Is there? Are you holding marriage firmly in honor and money loosely? The love of money is a root to all kinds of evil. And one of the ways that you can hold it loosely is by giving it away. Well, Kevin, I don't have money to give. Yes, you do. Ask others around you. I find on a consistent basis the, the way that I can find that money doesn't have a grasp on my heart, a grip of my heart, is by me giving it away. Finding ways to bless people instead of hoarding it. Instead of buying more and more stuff. But bless others. Give others. Give to others. This is one of the ways we can do this. So with that said, friends, when you're running up this, when you're running this marathon and running towards these, these two mountains, the two things that you have in your hand is marriage and money. One is held tightly. One is held loosely. But you are running. So let's run together. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We see an epidemic in our world today. Marriage is not held in honor. Rather, it's defiled. So I pray, I pray for our church, if there's any in this room that's defiling the marriage bed, God, they will repent and turn to you because you are a God who judges. You are consuming fire. One of the ways that we know that we are truly yours, God, is that we repent. We turn from lifestyles that are damning and dangerous. The Lord, speak to the hearts of your people to honor marriage. Speak to the hearts of your people to not love money, to not violate the first and tenth commandment, but God, to worship you and to exalt you. In your mighty and precious name.